Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. And we're back. You're listening to Wolf Take. I'm your host, Kion Wolf, and I've got hot takes on everything that's happening. The phone lines are open, 860-275-7266. First up, we've got Steve from Burlington. Steve, what is on your mind? Hi, Steve. No, I'm I'm Kion, and you're Steve. That's right. I was talking to your screener, and he asked me my name, and I told him Steve. Okay, so what is on your mind? Thanks for taking my call. Yes, go ahead. I'm a long-time caller, first-time listener. I think it's the other way around, Steve. What is? Never mind. Okay, so what uh, do you want to talk about? I'll take my answer off the air. Your answer to what? Anything. Why did you call here? I'm chained to a radiator in Asheville, North Carolina. I dialed the phone with my nose. I'm just trying to reach anyone, really. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold while I hit my head with a ball-peen hammer. Meanwhile, here's another all-phone call-in show with a guy who held hands with Melania for three seconds before she bit him, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it's a little like, bit like the five-second rule of dropping food on the floor. Um, you have to hang in there. But she doesn't like it. She doesn't like It's not just Donald. She doesn't like holding hands in general. It's been my experience. All right. So welcome. Welcome to the Colin McEnroe Show special Mixed Montana and Montenegro Martial Arts Edition um, so we're, what we're going to do today is, a, I wouldn't call it a little experiment. It's not a little experiment for me anyway, because for 16 years I worked in commercial radio, and it's not what we did every day, but it's kind of what we did most days is, you know, you go on the air and you take phone calls, right? See what people want to talk about. You bring up some topics. You do some hot takes. So, um, but that's what we're going to do today where there are no guests, just you. Uh, so you call, what happens is you call in. Here are the rules. You call in. 860-275-7266. You talk to a call screener who is, is Betsy the call screener today? Betsy, Betsy, Ka- Betsy Kaplan is the call screener. And then we put you on a list. And here's the most important rule. No shoving. All right. Like no matter where, like Edson from Waterford, he's first on the list right now. If you want to get ahead, you cannot shove that person. Now, the reason. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say this is, like, whenever you do a show like this, you're always kind of wondering, like, what's the kind of late-breaking news, particularly in this day and age, I mean, by which I mean May 2017, where just, like, every day five completely insane things happen. So you sort of wonder what's going to happen. And so last night, I mean, we had this kind of late-breaking news uh, about this body slamming incident in Montana where the Republican candidate was being approached by somebody from The Guardian, a reporter from The Guardian, and in front of witnesses, f- threw him to the floor and punched him in the face and broke his glasses and stuff like that. So that would be a definition of late breaking news. Except that, like just moments ago, this video got pushed up onto a number of different websites. It's from uh, President Trump's uh, current visit to NATO headquarters. <laughs> I can't even talk about it to NATO headquarters. I'm sort of laughing because it's so awful. I'm not really laughing because it's funny, exactly. But so there's he and a whole bunch of other world leaders are walking somewhere. It's kind of hard to figure out where they are. They're walking like down a hallway or across a lobby or something. And you can't really see him that well. He's a little bit back in the pack. 
And then he just sort of shoves the president of Montenegro, whose name is Dushko Markovic. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. I, my Montenegrin's a little rusty these days. I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't practiced for a while. Uh, I got to get that Rosetta Stone Montenegrin thing out. But um, so he, like he just kind of, I mean, it really looks like they're heading towards some craft services table, and there's not going to be enough pizza for everybody. I mean, it really. <laughs> It's it's very unpleasant looking, and his facial expressions are very strange. And so I guess this is how we act these days. We body slam people who are asking us questions we don't like, and we shove people if they if we want to get become more visible and get to the front front of the. I mean, it's NATO, not the Preakness. There's just like no real incentive to be out in front. I guess unless you really love the camera. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about today. I have some things that I want to talk about a little bit more seriously than that, although they're, I feel like they're all kind of interconnected. But yes, this has been a very strange and stressful time, for some of us anyway, and, and a time during which I think we've come to wonder what kind of condition our democracy is in and what kinds of directions it might take. I mean, I guess the way that I would put it is one possibility is that we could really see how well our democracy can function in a situation where it's being significantly and severely and sometimes a little bit scarily challenged. So, you know, given somebody like Donald Trump, who is coming into office with an unprecedented number of ethical problems and procedural problems and institutional problems for a president in his first 100 plus days, you know, you're kind of seeing some of the elasticity, at least so far, of our system, the way it can even when the political cards are stacked up a certain way, it, it can, you can get something like a, a special counsel, you know, pretty quickly. So that's like the nice way of looking at it. The bad way of looking at it is, you know, a few more sharp turns and we'd be really at a pretty critical juncture here. That There is a way in which, and I'm going to spell this out a little bit more if I have time um, as we go along here, there's a way in which a, a lot of signs have been sent. And, and some of the things that I just talked about, particularly the incident in Montana, I think are, are part of that pattern. A lot of signs have been sent that some basic understandings about American freedoms, uh, about the Bill of Rights, uh, about the function of the press, uh, about the free exchange of ideas are being challenged right now. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I, it freaks me out the way the president of the United States seems drawn towards ruthless tyrants, dictators, autocrats. I mean, that seems to be who he likes. I mean, in, in Saudi Arabia, we had the ominous photo of the orb with him and al-Sisi al and, Sal and King Salman. These guys are ruthless autocrats. Um, they do not brook dissent. They do not like freedom of the press. Uh, he's, you know, even prior to this visit, indicated his fondness for al-Sisi, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, and of course, the big one, the big one, Vladimir Putin. These are the people that he really likes a lot. I mean, he doesn't so far have con kind of comparably cordial relations with people who participate in recognizable democracies. That really, you know, all kidding aside, genuinely worries me. Um, and it worries when I, when I think to myself, is this a person who would, given an opportunity, limit the reach and scope and activities of the free press? I say, yeah, I mean, that's an, he's talked a little bit from time to time in different ways about how much that idea appeals to him. That 
makes me nervous. Not just because I'm, I'm a member of the press either, but because it just should make any American nervous. All right. So I said Edson can go first. Uh, really, I, I'm not going to try to control the topics too much. I mean, I've got things that I want to talk about, but I'm not going to over control those. Uh, if you call up and it's something that I have a no opinion about and b no expertise. Um, which could happen many times today. Uh, I don't know. We'll figure that out when it happens. Let's start with Edson from Waterford. Edson called up before the show even started. I think uh, that deserves something. Let's find out what it deserves. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, uh, Colin, thank you so much. Uh, always a great show. I always learn something. I'm always amazed at uh, how versatile you are in various topics. But anyway, enough kissing up to you. Um, I'm a retired state employee, and uh I'm uh, concerned about how the working person, and I considered myself a working person not too long ago, uh, are uh, encouraged to uh, um, go against each other. If if I have a retirement plan and someone doesn't, they uh, denigrate me and, and they're upset with me instead of thinking that maybe we should work together to get them more retirement options before they get to be 70 or 80 and have to uh, continue working. Yeah, I think that's a le- legitimate point of view. I mean, I... But I think it's important that each side understands the other's frustration because it really is true that a lot of people look at public employees or retired public employees right now and just feel like they have gold-plated options that are just not available to an awful lot of people working in in the private sector. And I think it's important to hear, like, I I don't know, I've been having some uh, unpleasant encounters even in the last 24 hours with people who work for public employee unions. They, They don't strike me as particularly open to that argument. These are actually not working people who are retired. These are people who work for the unions. I think it's important for the unions to send out their half of that message, which is we understand. In fact, like what you just said is perfect. You know, uh, we'd like to help you get some of the things that we have rather than you have wanting to take things away from us. Like I totally get that position, but it's almost never articulated that way. And I do find that the people who are the spokespeople for the public employee reunions reflexively just snarl and snap and hiss when anything like that is brought up. And, and yeah, I think you're right. We have to, each side has to learn to talk to each other better. You want to come back at me with something? Yeah, I I certainly (laughs) do. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, What I find is uh, whatever the topic might be, uh, that's impacting uh, large numbers of Americans, uh, the smart leaders get us to divide and conquer each other, whether it's uh, men versus women or, or race or, or economic or uh, whether they need some more fodder to throw in front of some guns over in the Middle East. But, uh, you know, they're, they're very clever at getting us to uh, uh, oppose each other, the, the common working man and the person that ends up being on the front lines in the military. And, and with that, I'll... Uh, listening to your show off the air. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Yeah. I think I think his his comments a fair one. But the other side of that is if you're a, sta- a retiree, a state retiree or a public employee with a really, you know, pretty solid, not to say generous health care plan, you should be as even though a prescription that costs somebody else twelve hundred dollars is going to be available to you for six dollars. You should be really concerned about the person having to pay $1,200. You should be actively wanting to reform a system that is essentially broken, even if that system works pretty well for you right now. So, yeah, you know, he's got a point, but I would like to have it both ways. All right. So let's. Oh, yeah, I think we have to. We got to start talking about Montana here. Here's Kevin in Ellington. Hi, Kevin. You didn't shove anybody to get into this position, did you? Oh, that's good. I'm glad I didn't. I didn't. 
take someone's place in line. Yeah, I have a family out in Montana, and I know the fact that they do a lot of their, their voting um, is done via mail-in ballot. And I'm wondering, since all of those were done in the previous few weeks, how much this will actually affect the overall turnout of this election. It's a great question. The number that I saw was 37 percent. Um, yeah. 37% of the voting is already completed, which is both a lot and not necessarily a decisive amount. I think the bigger question is, to what degree will this particular incident, well, actually, I have to back, I back up a little bit. Let me just back up a second. Uh, there's a tendency among very smart people to want to try to understand national trends in terms of statewide elections, right? And and I'm maybe at times one of those people, Um I don't know about the very smart part, but I'm you know you what you look at Georgia, you look at Montana, you look at these either district-wide elections, congressional districts, or in the case of Montana because it's so small, one district is the whole state, and you say, oh well, what's going on here? To what degree is the Democratic candidate outperforming typical Democratic levels? To what degree is Montana, which by some neat silvery kinds of calculations is 21 percent more Republican than the country as a whole? So what, to what degree is Republican approval sinking? You know, and then to make hay out of that somehow. And I'm not really sure that that makes that much sense. Uh, and Tip O'Neill fa- famously said all politics are local. Um, Montana politics probably have a good deal to do with Montana. It's a state that went overwhelmingly for Trump, but that doesn't mean that they vote that way all the time. They, you know, for example, have a Democratic governor. Um, And so, I mean, even looking at that state under ordinary circumstances and saying, well, you know, you put that one together with Kansas and Georgia and, and see ways in which Democrats are outperforming their normal levels or Republicans are underperforming, and you can start to maybe make some guesses about what's going to happen down the road. I think that's probably a fool's errand. Local politics are, you know, very quirky. Um, But to the extent that anybody wants to do that at all, probably this body slamming incident is a reason just to throw these results out. I mean, now you have something that's so weird. I mean, this really was according to the witnesses who saw it, an act of violence. Uh, the reporter was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. Uh, the police investigated. The sheriff uh, leading the investigation is a cash contributor to the Republicans' campaign there, to Mr. Gianforte's campaign. Uh, nonetheless, he, um, he found, uh, he made a finding anyway of misdemeanor assault uh, based on witness testimony and uh, other stuff. Um, can I just say one thing about Montana also that I really like a lot? <laughs> so Mike Pesco posted earlier today, like, what are the assault statutes in Montana? And they um, they have, like, this really one great thing in them that I want to share with you. And it says, uh, this, is, this is from the law. This isn't, like, some summary of the law. This is the way the law apparently is written. Someone who knowingly and intentionally causes bodily injury can be charged with assault. This means that only deliberate acts will support an assault charge. An accidental blow, for example, will not. Similarly, this is the part that's in italics for me. Similarly, someone who hurts another while suffering a temporary blackout has not assaulted the victim. You know, oh. <laughs> I mean, what, what law is even cognizant of the notion of a temporary blackout? To me, that's like sort of, you know... I mean, where's the exemption for things that your evil twin does, too? Because, like, what does a temporary blackout even mean? I mean, does it have a legal definition? In any case, there's Gianforte's get-out-of-jail-free card. He should just say, the guy asked me a question. 
about healthcare, and I had a temporary blackout, and I don't know what I did. The next thing I knew, his glasses were broken, and he was lying on the floor moaning in pain. You know, just go temporary blackout. <laughs> I mean, probably in Montana, it works every time. So um, I've actually sort of lost the whole uh, uh, thread of everything. Oh, so Kevin was asking about early voting. So anyway, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I actually do think that probably – with all the people voting today, they are going to absorb this new piece of information and then do whatever they do with it. You know, Montana is Montana. Local politics are local. Maybe in Montana, that's like really cool. (laughs) There may be a certain number of people who went, well, I probably would have done the same thing. I hate people asking me about health care. While I'm on that topic, hold on, let me just look at the phones here and see if there is anything that would, uh, um, uh, no, I don't see it. Um, So, while I'm on the subject, I do feel like it's one of the things that gets lost in this story because it's so weird and garish is what the question was that led to that. So the, the thing that The Guardian reporter was asking had to do with the Congressional Budget Office's scoring of the new version of the Republican health care bill. And so um, the CBO score is actually pretty bad. It estimated the number of uninsured would increase by 23 million in the first 10 years. It would make it uh, much harder for people with pre-existing conditions to get coverage. Um, it's first of all a lot of the things that Donald Trump during his campaign said would never come out of a health care bill that he did. If you recall, he said you know he, they were going to cover everybody no matter what it cost, uh, and they were just going to find a way to do it, and it was going to be a big, beautiful. I think he said a big, beautiful healthcare system. Well, this uh, absolutely is not. So the question that he was being asked that led to this temporary blackout in which he beat up a reporter it was one about, like, what are you going to do now? Because now there's a, a CBO score on this thing. And, you know, it's pretty negative, And it's negative in the ways that doomed the last version of it. So what are you going to do now? And apparently the answer is just, you know, body slam somebody. How about you? All right, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Let's go to uh, Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter, you're on the air. Hi, uh, yes, uh, I have a question. I know it's very early in the administration, but I'm wondering if Trump survives four years or even eight years and he doesn't get impeached uh, because, uh, let's say, the Democrats take in the House 10 or 12 uh, seats, and the Senate, maybe three or four seats, but they still have a majority, and uh, the Republicans still have a majority. How is Trump going to be viewed historically? I know it's too early, and a lot of historians say, well, you have to wait 100 years before you evaluate presidents. But how is, is Trump – I know, and he, yeah, I'm giving you a real softball because, I mean, it's so outrageous, this president. Uh, but how is he going to be viewed in history if he doesn't get impeached? I think people may be jumping the gun about this impeachment stuff. And it's, it's far, far from it. And, uh, you know, uh, what is the House just uh, going to let let this go? Um, you know, because I, I have a theory that the Democrats want Trump to be pre- uh, stay in because it's going to be a big fundraiser for him. And it's going to be fodder for the Democratic campaigns. And the Republicans want Trump in, too, because he, at least he'd get, uh, you know, the, the health care repeal and this stuff and that stuff. Both parties, in a, in a very dysfunctional way, want him to be in. Uh, and that's my kooky theory. Well, it's not all that kooky a theory. And if you talk to a lot of political operatives on either side, you hear that over the years, one hears that. So that, 
I remember um, at an event I was at to watch the first presidential debate in this 2016 election cycle, uh, and it was a mix of Republicans and Democrats gathered together to watch this debate. And I was talking to a Republican operative. And, you know, at that point, it was still kind of the default theory was that Trump couldn't possibly win this election, you know, earlier in the cycle, first debate, but still. And this Republican operative said to me that she had accepted that idea uh, and it was fine because she could raise insane amounts of money uh, off of a Hillary Clinton presidency. That, you know, there were so many people uh, who are potential Republican donors or givers who would either give more than usual or give instead of not giving that it was just going to be, you know, a big hallelujah chorus for them to have Hillary Clinton in the White House. And, and so the obverse of that is true, too. I mean, Trump obviously is somebody who's very useful to all kinds of people. Obviously, I mean, I, I, I've said this in the past, but it almost doesn't need to be said, but it's been a great fundraising tool for the American Civil Liberties Union and the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund and all these nonprofits. I just named three of them that I've given to in the past year, but uh, all these nonprofits, National, uh, National Resource Defense Council, um, environmental groups, um, civil liberties groups, stuff like that. It's, it's a boon for them. It's a boon for the press, as you all know. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post subscriptions have boomed through the roof. And, and yes, obviously, there's, it's a, a great fundraising tool for Democrats and in such an exaggerated way that should somehow, and I agree with Peter that I think um, impeachment talk is, is premature, uh, just given the political constitution of Washington. But, you know, you know, should Trump not be president, say, in the beginning of 2018, for whatever reason, uh, I don't think Mike Pence would be as useful a fundraising tool. I mean, under ordinary circumstances, he might. He's a you know, very strong cultural conservative, um, the kind of person that maybe Democrats could raise a lot of money off of. But, I mean, now <laughs> he's going to be so so much more tame than what we've lived through. So, yeah, there's a way in which Donald Trump is useful. You kind of hope that most Democratic elected officials, that uh, members of Congress, uh, you know, don't emphasize that as much as they are concerned about ways in which he is doing going against everything that they believe in. Uh, I mean, I, I would hope anyway that for the average member of Congress on the Democratic side, the assault on so many basic principles of the Democratic Party would be a larger issue than their ability to raise money or their ability to build up their own political profile. Obviously, there's some people who are going to benefit politically from this moment. One of them probably is Chris Murphy. Chris Murphy has been very effective uh, in in sort of showcasing his own rhetorical abilities and his own sense of outrage at things that have happened here at the beginning of the Trump presidency in a way that has thrust him into consideration for the 2020 field, maybe in a way that wouldn't have happened under ordinary circumstances, although there's no way to know that. So, yeah, I mean, it's an ill wind that blows nobody some good. So Trump um, it may be an ill wind, but he's not that ill a wind. He's blowing some good to various people. We're going to take a break right now. I see a whole bunch of you online. I'm going to figure out who's who and who wants to talk about what, and we'll come right back. Chopped off his hair. I'm the only one who stops to see if he's dead. Mm, turns out he's dead, and that's why I'm singing. Why? What is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? Think about it. 
All right, we are back. Uh, our number, I shouldn't give out the number right now because the lines are kind of full. I'll give the number out a little bit later. But we are just doing open phones here today. We're not booking guests. I'm not over-controlling the topics. There are things that I do want to talk about, but I also want to know what you want to talk about. Let's start with Cassandra from Simsbury. Hi, Cassandra. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I was just thinking about what you said about politics is um, typically local. In fact, Trump has really moved us to the point where now I have contributed to a six-district candidate in Georgia mm-hmm. named John Ossoff, who also has received thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars outside of the state of Georgia because if we can get him elected, we will gain a seat. And I think that this is what uh, something we has not been quite so um, dominant over the past few years. I've never contributed to someone who will never represent me, but um, local politics has now become very national. I think it's a great point, and I, I don't disagree with you, although I would just sort of run through... A, a few other aspects of it. Let me just sort of see if I can sort my thoughts out in real time here. The first one is that you're absolutely right about that. You're absolutely right about the way in which the current political climate has ginned up a lot of interest uh, in races uh, that are far afield from where people live, and, and it has caused them to give money. That can be a good thing. It can be not a good thing. It's uh, not that hard for a canny well-run opposition campaign, Republican campaign in Georgia in this case, to make an issue out of uh, out-of-state money coming into a local race. So here are these uh, Yankees uh, up in Connecticut trying to influence our politics here. Uh, that's not a good thing. If they do it right, if they do it uh, effectively as part of their overall message, that uh, can actually kind of have a, a boomerang effect. Um, similarly, one of the things that I think we've had to adjust ourselves to is that unlimited unlimited amounts of money in campaigns aren't necessarily good things. Um, if unlimited amounts of money uh, won campaigns, uh, Linda McMahon would be both senators. She, we would have two senators and it would be both be Linda McMahon. Uh, I guess that's not really true. But um, but you know what I'm saying here, that in fact, that you know, watching McMahon, there was actually a point where I felt as a political observer that I could see her spending beginning to work against her. Uh, too many commercials, uh, too much mar- saturation of the market. So, um, you know, in some ways, one thing Democrats have to do is be smart about their message, be smart about a message that's really about um, helping people. Uh, about ways in which they're going to make a difference on behalf of the people who are voting right now. Uh, and, I mean, that might be more important than how much money you have available to spend on an election. And, and the last thing that I would say is you and I don't really disagree about this. All I would say is when I say that all politics are local, I don't mean that all politics are so local that nobody could possibly care about it in a uh, Georgia race in Connecticut. I mean that it's hard for people in Connecticut to influence the outcome of an election in Georgia. The people in Georgia are still going to make a decision about who they want for Congress based on their own sensibilities, not necessarily on what the rest of the country wants to see happen. So uh, we don't disagree, and and I think you make a really good point that it's been a motivating factor. But uh, you have to watch that, and it's not always uh, a 100% plus. All right, so let's uh, grab a few more phone calls. Here's Tom from West Hartford. Hi, Tom. You're on the air. Hello, Colin. What's on your mind? Uh, I uh, started listening to your show uh, on your first days on TIC. (laughs) 
And back then, Joe Lieberman was a frequent guest, yes. and you would dis- disturbingly introduce him as the Lamb of God. I never could really get what you meant by that. But anyway, uh, how spectacularly bad do you think he would have been as a choice for head of the FBI? Uh, well, your answer is contained in your question. I mean, he would have been spectacularly bad. So, and, and I think we can now say, well, it's now actually being said in a semi-official way that that candidacy is dead. And, and I think it's sort of dead for two or three different reasons. I mean, although it's difficult to assign cause and effect in the current climate because you just never know what is going to motivate President Trump. But uh, he obviously liked the idea of Lieberman at one point floated him as a trial balloon. Lieberman has close ties to uh, Betsy DeVos, uh, was the one who basically presided over her political coming out party in this administration and has at least not been terribly hostile towards Donald Trump. Um, so Trump liked that idea. Now, there were two or three basic problems, basically two. One of them was that it was not going to be smooth sailing through uh, through the Democratic part of the U.S. Senate. And there was an awful lot of people, a, lo- a lot of accumulated bad will towards Joe Lieberman for stuff that would take way too long to explain. Uh, but they were going to, if there was a confirmation, they were going to bring up a lot of that stuff and make it hard for him. And the other problem is that Lieberman is supremely unqualified for this job. It is, the way I understand FBI director, a massive administrative job. It's something You have to be a really good administrator. You have to have some strong managerial chops to do this job. Uh, and you have to have a law enforcement background. He doesn't have either one of those things. He doesn't really run any large-sized operation ever. The biggest thing he ever ran would have probably been the Connecticut Attorney General's office. That's not that big, and typically the Attorney General isn't a major managerial part of it anyway. Uh, and he has no law enforcement background, so like in criminal, criminal law enforcement. So he was the wrong person. I'm sure there was a clamor from the ranks of the FBI saying, no, 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 no. That's what we don't need right now. We need somebody who can get this, uh, get a feeling of functionality here in this department. So, um, so anyway, that's basically what I think about all that. Uh, but, uh, okay, so we want to, uh, and as somebody has also pointed out, uh, with Mark Kasowitz, who's a, a principal in the law firm where Lieberman works, being named as one of Donald Trump's outside counsels in this Russian, Russia investigation, that kind of also took Lieberman off the table. That would have been kind of the third thing. All right, I'm just uh, flying around the board here, 860-275-7266. We have one or two lines open here. Uh, we're going to go to Bill in New Milford. Hi, Bill. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. Uh, I, I, the thought occurred to me as you were promoting the show yesterday that um, – the thing, no one has been more, maybe lots of people have been disappointed about the election, but I feel like I've, uh, a lot, me and a lot of my friends are going through the five stages of grief, right? We started out right after election night with denial, then went pretty quickly to anger, and then somewhere along the line we said, well, maybe, maybe, you know, we went to bargaining where we said, yeah, maybe this guy can do it. Uh, and when we saw the last three or four months, we went, to depression, and now I'm afraid we're all getting towards acceptance, and I don't want to get to that point. The last thing I want to do is get to acceptance, but the sheer deluge of stuff that comes out of Washington every day, it's it's hard to keep up, and I'm afraid I'm just going to say, shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, what are you going to do, and accept it? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some of that, and uh, there certainly is a, say, a way in which We've altered our standards for a functional presidency. I mean, you can see that right now with his foreign trip. You know, it's not that he has 
achieved a tremendous number of wins on this foreign trip. But he hasn't screwed up too, too badly. Although, I mean, in the ways that he's screwed up have, for the most part, been in weird little superficial uh, instances. Um, so you've got everything from saying he just got back from the Middle East when he's still in Israel uh, to uh, the orb fondling incident in Saudi Arabia to today's shove, the Montenegrin uh, leader, uh, to the sort of blurting of, I never mentioned Israel uh, in a situation where it probably wasn't a good idea to bring up Israel. You're essentially kind of confirming Israel's involvement in that particular uh, intelligence question. Um, I could go on. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. And obviously, the uh, writing the strange anodyne last day of summer camp message in the memorial um, guest book at, uh, at the Holocaust uh, museum in, in Israel. I mean, there's like sort of a lot of that kind of stuff. But like in terms of like gigantic policy blunders, there aren't really you can't really point to something like that. So this is going to be treated, I can already tell you, as a successful trip that he appeared for the most part presidential. Uh, th that's the way that this is going to be described. And, and part of it, I mean, I think if a lot of other presidents took this trip, people, the press and the other people who kind of evaluate these things, these things would be going, meh. <laughs> seemed to have very much to contribute there, did he? But um, I think we've changed our standards a little bit, and maybe that's part of your idea of acceptance. Now, eventually, he's coming back to this country where it appears that there will be multiple investigations going, some of them in open congressional hearings and uh, the special counsel investigation uh, taking place a little bit more privately. The Comey problem is not going away. Um, the question about whether he attempted to influence both Coates and Rogers, two of the top ranking intelligence officials in the United States, uh, to to do something about the Comey problem. That's not going away. A lot of this stuff is sort of not going away. Whether and, and you know, in terms of pu public opinion, I don't know. Nate Silver just did do kind of an analysis saying that he he would make the case that the Trump base is actually shrinking a little bit and it's specifically shrinking in the area of people who strongly support the president. So the people who describe themselves as strongly supporting the president are dropping. They're dropping down. Some of them are changing to merely support, not strongly support. Uh, so his support is getting more moderated, less strong. It's a 35 to 40 percent base. Um, that's not really a base that you can feel particularly comfortable about, particularly this early in your presidency. So. I don't know. I don't know what Kubler-Ross stage we're at exactly. Uh, let's talk to uh, Ruth here. I'm prioritizing women because they call talk shows less often. So uh, Ruth here in Sandy Hook. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Good afternoon. Uh, great show. Love that you're doing it. I have two things. I'll try and make it quick. The first one is my concern that Russia was able to put out a fake kind of, I'm going to call it a uh, news thing that got to influence Comey so that he felt he had to come out and talk about Hillary's emails and that he really knew at the time that it was fake he had done enough whatever looking at looking at it but he still did it so that's a huge concern how clever and, and it seems to me brilliant at this stuff uh, Russia is um, and I'm sure they will continue, and that's a huge thing. And and then the other thing is I would love you to do another show when you get a chance inviting Trump supporters in to see how they feel now that Trump has, in my opinion, backstabbed them uh, with this health care and, and tax breaks for the very wealthy and see if there's any, you know, change of heart that they're willing to talk about. 
Right. So that's a, that, that suggestion has been made by other people. We did, as I think Ruth probably knows, I think this is what she's referencing. She we did do a show during the campaign where we just brought a, brought a bunch of people who were confirmed Trump voters in here and talked to them about why they liked him so much. Um, and I, I, we we need to do something like that again. I don't mind waiting another month or two because you know obviously there's sort of a whole bunch of things going on that involve these investigations. And I'll get back to the Russia thing in just a second. Um, that are probably more meaningful to non-Trump supporters. But the stuff that's happening right now, the health care bill, which is still essentially a violation of all of Trump's promises to his base, and the budget bill, which, which contains similar problems. These are essentially violations uh, of campaign promises, uh, of the way he promised to think about and take care of the average American, the working American, the less than affluent American. They are not looked after in any of these proposals. And, and, but I'm not really sure that it's it sunk in yet, the degree to which that's true. So I'm not sure whether that chicken has come home to roost or not. But you raise a really interesting question. The other thing that I would just quickly say is that, um, you know, in terms of the Russia thing, uh, it's important to remember that the Russia hack was into the um, uh, to the DNC uh, uh, slash Hillary campaign stuff. Um, that was sort of where the hack that went to WikiLeaks was. Uh, they also... Uh, were clearly involved in putting out various kinds of disinformation using not not through hacking, but just actually through the dissemination of false information. Um, but this is a little bit separate from what Comey was looking at. What Comey was looking at was sort of a di different thing. It wasn't the stuff that was hacked. Uh, it was the uh, insecure email, this, the private server that Hillary, Hillary Clinton had set up. So those are kind of two different things. And I'm not really quite sure that you can say that Russia created the insecure Hillary private server issue uh, and, and made it as important as it became in the in the campaign. I think that happened in a different way. All right. So um, we'll take a quick break. Boy, this show's flying by. I, I want three more hours. I'm having fun anyway. I hope you are. 860-275-7266. Just you and me. No guests. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears, no tigers in 50 years. Rising poison in the air and water. I can't understand. By the price of gas. just found out that the new Republican health care bill does not cover ER visits for reporters injured by politicians. That's not fair. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish will take your answer on the air. The part of Bill Curry was played by Angela Merkel. On tomorrow's show, the nose meets George Bernard Shaw. And now. Back to Colin. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about theater tomorrow. We're going to talk about the play Heartbreak House at the Harvard Stage Company, which has a very unsubtle evocation of Donald Trump. I don't know how much of that we're going to spoil for you if you haven't gone to that play, but, I mean, nothing is left to the imagination about whether or not they are evoking the notion of Donald Trump in this uh, much older play. Uh, also, talk about David Mamet. He's kind of a jerk, but in particular does not want people to have uh, talkback sessions uh, when regional theaters stage his plays. He doesn't want that whole thing where, you know, after the curtain call, people can hang around and some people come out on stage and discuss the meaning of it. He doesn't want anyone doing that. But we'll also talk about some other stuff going on in pop culture. Uh, so join us for that. 
while I'm thinking of it, although I probably should actually have a working plan for this before I announce it, but um, a week from tomorrow, we'll be in Great Barrington at the Berkshire International Film Festival, where we've gone most years. We didn't go last year, but we go we go there most years, and it's sort of a great chance to get a glimpse of sort of what's coming down the road in terms of new movies and what doc, hot documentary filmmakers are thinking about and talking about right now. And I don't know, there's usually some movie stars up there to talk to as well. So we do this every year. We're moving into the beautiful Mahalo. Hayway Theater, uh, which, and I'm assuming there's going to be some way to get people in there so you can be part of the audience. Um, so I haven't really worked that out with the film festival, but just kind of in pencil circle. If you live, say, maybe up in the sort of, you know, what we call the Dankosky region of Connecticut, the northwest part of the state, uh, or maybe even over the line in Massachusetts, it's a pretty quick drive up to Great Barrington. We'll be on at 1 p.m. our usual time up there, and we'd love to have you join us at the Mahewi. I'll get you in somehow. All right. Just trust me. Uh, but more details to come, too. We'll announce some details as we go along. All right. So uh, let's uh, go to the phones here. Uh, here's Ken in Kensington. Hi, Ken. Hi, Colin. What's on your mind? Well, I think it's time to disband the Electoral College. I feel that it's archaic and disruptive. And that's it. All right. Well, I have some very bad news for you, which is that uh, and you, you should talk to your elected representatives in the General Assembly about this, because, in fact, I mean, the best way to do this is what's called the NPV movement, National Popular Vote. It's the inter interstate compact, which will take too long for me to explain right now. But it's a way there's a way to disband the Electoral College without having to amend the Constitution. And it's called the NPV. Uh, and but it, it requires a certain set of approvals and. The General Assembly, and this has been up at our General Assembly numerous times uh, in many previous sessions, and the highly ineffectual, I believe it was in the House, it stalled in the House, they couldn't get it moving, it's not going to get vo even voted on, not even an up or down vote on the NPV. So if you would like to get rid of the Electoral College, the people that you have to talk to about this are not your members of Congress so much, uh, at least not right now. Uh, or anybody else except your state legislators. Get to know your state legislators and then buttonhole them and say, how come you didn't do that? And I did say buttonhole. Uh, buttonhole them and say, how come you didn't do that? Why uh, couldn't you even manage to take a vote uh, on something like that? Uh, all right. So uh, I am darting around the board here. Here's uh, Tim in Hamden. Hi, Tim. You're on the air. Hi, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, absolutely. Um, my question, you know, besides the bizarre uh, headlines I read about uh, Governor Malloy telling uh, the, the State House to be easier on the insurance people, you know, I'm really wondering about what what's up with our Connecticut delegation. I favor single-payer. I think most of your audience would probably also favor. But none of our so-called liberal, progressive Democrats, congressmen or senators have, have been signed on to the single payer bill. And I'm wondering, I know the, the, the vote counts and everything like that, but why aren't they, you know, out there championing saying, yes, well, we support, you know, something that is, would be an, a, you know, clear alternative to uh, what the, you know, the Trump and the Republicans are out there doing. All right. Well, uh, let me just say this. Uh, I mean, uh, I I started talking about single payer in the 1990s on my old WTIC show. I've been a big fan of single payer. I think ultimately something like that 
or uh, some kind of public-private uh, hybrid uh, is still the way to go. It's the best. And so I'll say a couple of things. Uh, I, first of all, want to recommend the Elizabeth Rosenthal book that we talked about on Tuesday with Elizabeth Rosenthal. It's called An American Sickness. It's the best comprehensive description of A, what's wrong with the American healthcare system, and B, what we can do short-term and long-term about that. Uh, also, Matt Iglesias has a terrific piece in uh, Vox on Vox.com today. It's something He's saying what I've been saying for a long time. That's why I think it's a terrific piece. But he's saying, no, none of the things that are being talked about right now under the rubric of health care reform are actually reform, and they're not things that will ever address this problem. I mean, cost control is the key to this whole thing. You have to find some way to control costs. Now, with a single-payer plan, obviously, you have a tremendous opportunity to control costs. But you also pretty much have to write that into the DNA of your plan. I still think I think it, I think a single payer plan is still going to be very difficult to do. It's going to have a lot of hurdles to clear. That's no reason that we shouldn't want it, but we have to be realistic about what we can get. I am, I still am I'm a person. I I still think that I would rather see a comparable amount of energy uh, applied towards the so-called public option. Uh, which I think would effectively be a single-payer plan anyway. The public option is is not uh, one plan to rule them all, one plan to guide them. It's just that rather than, you know, if for whatever reason you're not happy getting your insurance from Blue Cross Blue Shield or, or Aetna or whoever, you can get some version of it from the federal government, that it would be sort of an elective Medicare for all program you would have the choice of whatever the choices are out there in the private market. The private market is not shut out or excluded uh, from doing stuff. And maybe these exchanges stay set up pretty much the way that they are. But there's always a public option, too. If you don't like the choices there, you can have this choice. Now, the reason, I mean, the, the dirty secret of that is that the private sector can't compete with the public option. It's why it wasn't in the Affordable Care Act, because the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was tailored to make the private markets as happy as they could be made under the circumstances. And, and I mean, their position was, no, we just can't do that. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but it starts with, if you, with, if you look at Medicare, 98% of the dollars that go into Medicare come out in the form of patient care. Um, the private market struggles to achieve uh, an Obamacare-mandated 80 to 85% rate uh, on that. So, I mean... For all the talk about how flabby and inefficient the federal government is and how much more efficient private markets are, they're not really. You know, if you're going to start by paying your executive $23 million, well, that's, you know, a whole bunch of other executives, you know, um, down the food chain, comparable amounts. Um, right away, you're going to have some problems keeping up with the federal government because they don't pay anybody $23 million. Uh, and there are, there are other reasons as well. Okay, so I can do probably one last call. Um, hmm. um, 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 well, here, you know, no. I don't want to have a fight with, well, I'll have a fight with the burning guy. All right. Here's George from Woodbury. Hi, George. <laughs> Hi, Colin. No, no need to fight here. Okay. I think we're on the same page. Uh, I, ha I, I um, do landscape sculpture work, and I was uh, uh, at a dinner with lim my limousine liberal friends on Saturday night who were tearing their hair out at, Liber at Hillary's loss, and uh, around the room there was uh, a big hue and cry over my statement that if Hillary had simply chosen Bernie for the janitor's job, which is the VP, she would have won by a massive margin. And, and they were all disagreeing with me, which was shocking to me because it's such an obvious thing. 
Hillary's judgment was really poor, and Bernie was right all along. And my point in calling you now is to encourage you to give Bernie more credit, more airtime, and uh, uh, posit him as a viable candidate for 2020, because physically he's amazing. I've seen him multiple times in rallies, and uh, he has the health to run again. And he's the only politician who tells the truth. I I, but, I would agree. I, you know, we're not going to have a fight, first of all. If he's healthy and vital in 2020, I mean, I think he'll be a very viable politician and a much more viable politician. I do want it to be clear. Like I was a, Hillary, I was a Bernie supporter slash voter here in Connecticut. I mean, in the primary, uh, I was certainly rooting for Bernie to win, and I would have been very happy to see him as the Democratic nominee. Um, it didn't work out that way. There are a lot of reasons why it didn't work out that way, and some of them have to do with him, and some of them have to do with a system that really was kind of rigged. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like he softened up the field a little bit so that if he's he's going to be really old but if he's um as vital as george says he is in 2020 i, I don't see any reason why he couldn't take a, a good shot at this anyway uh but that's there's a long time to go twixt now and then thanks to for, thanks to everybody who helped out today including my people jonathan mcpence and bitsy kaplan and kion wolf and thanks to you too we had a lot of calls today this is fun we'll do it again unless people say they really hated it in which case we might not Right now we're talking about Madonna and her relationship with her fans. Caller, go ahead. What's your name? John Miller. Okay, John, what's your story? Donald Trump was asked to go over, and so he went over and said hello to Madonna. Excuse me, is this Donald Trump? No, no. What's your name again? John Miller. I don't believe you. Hello? Hello?